It's never about context being in or out. The question is what the relevant context is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts. Ceteris non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Welcome to Ceteris non paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Maria Back, and I'm your host for this episode. Today I will be discussing methods in history of economic thought, and in particular Tom Stapleford's method of doing history of economics as a history of practices, which was published as a chapter entitled Historical Epistemology and the History of Economics, Views Through the Lens of Practice, in Research in the History of Economic Thought and Methodology. The paper won the Warren Samuels Prize for Interdisciplinary Research in the History of Economic Thought and Methodology this year. As part of the working group on history of economic thought, Reinhard Schumacher and I organised a workshop for young scholars before the annual conference of the European Societies for History of Economic Thought in May of this year. We invited Harrow Mass and Jan Giraud to discuss a couple of different methods, in particular Stapleford's method I mentioned. Before we go on to the interview with Tom Stapleford, I just want to briefly explain why Reinhard and I found it important to organise a methods workshop. Like many PhD students in history of economic thought, I came from a traditional economics background with only quantitative methods in my methods toolkit. I felt like I was running around in the dark the first year, frantically trying to grasp which method to choose and how the rather abstract texts I was reading could ever translate into a step-by-step guide. Now in my fourth year, I realized that a step-by-step guide was probably my naive mind seeking a simple roadmap that I could follow religiously. I think the penny dropped when my supervisor, Valbona Muzaka at the King's College London, explained how a method is not an exact manual, but rather like a ferrupter which you gaze through while the optician tests your eyesight by flipping different lenses in front of your eyes until you can see the large letter E on top of the eye chart. What is most important is to be aware of the different sources at your disposal and how your chosen method can help you organize them into a coherent and systematic research agenda. What are your impressions now a day after of the workshop yesterday that we did on methods in history of economic thought? I found it very useful. It was a chance to reflect on my own work. That was Peter Bent, a PhD student in economics at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and a participant at our workshop. Many participants at our workshop said they enjoyed the opportunity to reflect on what and how they do their research, rather than just assuming that we know what we're doing. However, most of them thought we covered too many methods, which meant that depth was missing. So this is why I decided, along with Christina Lescaridis, a PhD student at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, to interview Tom Stapleford and ask him more specific questions. We've put a link to Tom's paper on our website, so do have a look at this before you continue listening if you want a bit of background. Tom's paper explores an alternative perspective that builds on the French tradition of historical epistemology and treats economics as a social practice. He argues that a practice-based view provides a more philosophically robust conception of historiography and a richer field of investigation for historians of economics. So Christina asked Tom, about this historical epistemology. Because I, I really, I, I, there's a lot of things I like about the work that has been done in the Anglo-American banner of, of historical epistemology. So there's lots of sort of interesting, um, interesting things about it. It actually encompasses a really wide range of stuff. So there's not one thing that gets labeled historical epistemology. If you read some of the 
Um, you know, some of the stuff that I cite, their essays are kind of talking about this. This is one of their their points uh, points of emphasis. So Gingrich's article is kind of a critique of these different notions of historical epistemology in, in the Anglo-Saxon version and differentiating it from from actually the, the French tradition. So that's a nice kind of mm-hmm. resource if you want a little bit more of an overview on those grounds. In a lot of, not always, but in, in some cases, the Anglo-American version is really about concepts. Um, so... You know, so a good example is you know the Dastan and Gallison book Objectivity. That's a really nice ex- uh, example, I think, of, of an Anglo-American way of, of doing historical epistemology. That in fact shares many things in common with with the this sort of French tradition that I'm that I'm trying to map out, and it and actually has lots of interesting stuff about practices within there. But the focus, like the the, the core of the book, is mapping out these different concepts of mechanical, of, sorry, of objectivity. Because so we've got this word objectivity, and it's does epistemological work for us that you know scientists want to be objective, but they point out objectivity gets used in different ways and can mean different things, and so they are sort of um, delineating these different notions of, of objectivity. So it's a st- in that respect, it's kind of a study of uh, of concepts of concepts that we use to talk about the work we're doing and talk about what constitutes you know, good ways of creating knowledge and stuff like that. Okay, and so it's it's very you know it's it's good in its in its own way. There's lots of really really cool stuff about it. What interests me from the French tradition is the kind of stuff that I'm writing about and here about these, you know, even the diagram that you're asking me about. The diagram that Tom is referring to can be found in the paper and will be discussed a bit more later. It's this way of thinking about history where you have practices that exist on all these different levels and different configurations, and what you're doing is tracking the transformations in those relationships over time. And that's not that's not something that the Dass and Gallison book explicitly sets out to do. Now, some of that is, is there because of the way that historians have an emphasis on, on contextualization, but they don't approach it in the same way that, um, you know, that someone like Foucault does. And so, I, you know, personally, I just found the, the, the French work really philosophically rich and interesting to me, and I think in some cases more robust than, than, the, um, than the philosophical grounding um, in the Anglo-American version. So... If, if there's a logical reason for it, that's what, <laughs> that's the logical reason. I say that I just really, I, I found it just fascinating. Um, you know, I did, this paper has its origins in a, in a course that I took as a graduate student from Arnold Davidson that was on historical epistemology. It was supposed to be kind of doing kind of French and English stuff, and we never got to the English things because we were just, we had so much fun doing the French stuff. I understood like maybe one third of what we were talking about in that class, but I, I found it so fascinating, I kind of kept coming back to it and reading it and teaching it over the years, and sort of a lot of those thoughts kind of came into this paper. We then asked about Tom's thesis that we should not analyse ideas, but rather practices. And I had this anecdotal story from the Eshet conference this year. François Alisson, as you may know from the University of Lausanne, takes this example of this economist coming from Europe to Russia, I forget his name, with a book in his briefcase. And it just made me think, I was like, okay, well, so if you have this book in this briefcase, you assume that the person has read it and, and the person had read it, according to François. Those, that idea is going to disseminate in, he went to a conference in Russia, right? So, so that then has nothing to do with the direct, well, has to do with the, the ideas that are in the text, right? The discourse that are in the text. But it is this, there is an idea of a dissemination of something, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of mm-hmm. concepts and so on. Right. Is there a way that you account for that in your method? And if so, how? Or, or you just say, well, look, that's intangible, so why discuss it? I guess the, the, the claim that I want to make was not that idea that ideas don't exist. It's not a sort of 
claim that we should stop talking about ideas or using the term or, or anything like that. It's rather just an attempt to remind ourselves what we're actually doing when you know, what we're studying. That we aren't studying these ideas that are sort of sitting out there. That's the first part that we're studying. We're studying the text, right? And then that that makes a difference. But the 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 corollary to that is that it has other ramifications too. So you're giving this example of someone bringing a book to a conference, okay? And the question is, what do they share at the conference? Do they share, you know, even if they don't share the book itself, right? They're going to talk, and so they're. And the point I wanted to emphasize is that the spoken word, like speaking, what we're doing right now, is also a practice, and that's what's really being transmitted. That's what you can track. Is you can track the the practice, but you can't track the idea. And this this is important because. Um, it shapes the way we think about what we often call the transmission of ideas or the reception of ideas. So I give an example in the um, in the paper here of this essay by Andy Warwick, who's a historian of, of physics, who's done really, I think, fantastic stuff thinking about practice and uh, physics and, and mathematics. Um, and he's actually a really good person for um, you know, anyone interested in the history of economics to read if you're thinking about, especially from Britain in the, in the early 20th century, because he talks a lot about the kind of training that one would have gotten through Cambridge mathematical exams and stuff like this and how it shapes the way people are thinking. So he was examining this case of what has often been called the sort of reception of Einstein's theory of relativity. Okay, so Einstein publishes this, this paper in 1905, um, and then there are all sorts of um, studies that think about, well, the reception of relativity in Germany or the reception of relativity in, in Britain. And one of the things that Warwick notices is that when the physicists working in um, these labs associated with, with Cambridge University get Einstein's paper, they they read it and they you know, ask questions about it, but it all is in the context of certain you know, traditional questions they've been asking, certain things that had come, risen to them through the forefront, through their um, through the training they had received, through their Cambridge mathematical undergraduate education. And so that actually the kinds of things that interested them were probably not the sorts of things that interested Einstein, were not in fact the sorts of things that interested the German physicists who were reading Einstein's paper. So how do you talk about this? If you, if you ask... Talk about the reception of the theory of relativity. That implies that this theory is like, you know, it's like a thing that somehow got there and, and they were then, you know, deciding what to do about it. But in fact, what they had was a paper and they read it according to the interests and priorities that, that they had at the time. And that, that's why I think it's more valuable to focus on artifacts and to focus on, uh, on practices and recognize this is, the practices are things that are transmitted, you know, the spoken words, uh, lecture notes, all sorts of um, ways of inscribing, recording, uh, recording those are transmitted, but not ideas per se. Does that make sense? And so it's it's kind of a methodological reminder, I guess, that, that helps us think about what's what's going on, and I think in a more effective way. But it's not, you know, I'm not sort of saying, oh, ban the use of the word ideas, and it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's we can't talk in those terms anymore. It's it's really about, I guess, you know, sort of reminding ourselves what, what we're actually doing. You know, you do, we do talk about battle of ideas, though. That's Christina, the PhD student at SOAS in London, who interviewed Tom with me. And we do talk about context, which allows certain ideas to spread and certain ideas not to spread. And, yeah, that, that is also obviously pra practice-based. Right, right, right. But so, again, I, and there I wouldn't talk about it as a battle of ideas. And let's say we're talking about Newton's three laws of physics. Right? Like, these examples come more easily because it's the stuff that I teach with, with undergraduates. All right, so we're, we're talking about you know, Newton's three laws of motion. So you have the fourth, well, for Newton, force is proportional to mass acceleration, but force equals mass times acceleration. Okay. So you might talk, think about that as being an idea, all right? 
And you might think of like the you know, Cartesians um, on the on continental France as having a different understanding of, of motion, um, where motion is created through impact, right? Motion is transmitted by it. By impact and has a, a different set of relationships that go along with it. So you talk about the clash between those two ideas, and that would be one traditional way of talking about this, about this debate about mm. you know about Newton's theory. But what's actually happening? Like, what does it mean to understand Newton's three laws of motion? It clearly doesn't mean you just like write F equals ma or something like that. It's you've got to be able to take this and apply it and use it in a certain way. So if you're training like physics undergraduates today, you know you would give them these problems in the, the textbook and they're supposed to somehow use the, the formula to you know, plug things in in the right way and come out with the, with the answer. So in other words, they're, they're doing something, right? Their understanding of this is manifest, what we might say is their understanding of the idea is manifest in their practices and, you know, and how they um, manipulate the symbols on the page. And so I think about this notion of a clash of ideas, I want to talk about it in terms of a clash of practices, right? So if you had competing understandings, let's say, which there, there were competing understandings of what exactly a force is, well, that always is, if we're going to know there's a clash, it's going to manifest itself in, in practices in some way, in competing sorts of texts that are being written about trying to make sense of these things and competing ways of using, using this formula. And I would want to, again, I like to use the language of those competing practices because it reminds us what it is that we're studying. It's not that there are these ideas that are floating around that are bouncing off. It's there are these practices, and the practices may be in conflict. They may be in competition with one another. People might be arguing for the validity of one practice vis-a-vis -vis another. And so I, so I would take that same kind of scenario, but just re-describe it in a different way. How are those two things different? If I'm taking sure. a book and then building up a story around, you know, yeah, the author was trying to say this, but if we look, if we place this book in its context, we can see that this is what's being said around, this is the significance of what's being said, right. which might be a more kind of traditional approach to contextualizing ideas. It's going to depend on any given case, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, so there, there are lots of books that are written in that style talk about it, that, that I like a lot, I think are really, are really good and really valuable. Um, and in many cases, I would maybe even just take the same kind of scenarios would describe it slightly different ways, uh, but it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't alter the core content of the, of, of the argument. But I think there are other times where the difference sort of does matter. I think, you know, I talked earlier about it being a, a kind of um, hermeneutical lens or, or a methodological lens that focuses our attention on certain things. So let's take an example of the, the textbook. You could talk about the textbook as being this kind of container of ideas. I mean, any with the sense that oh, and that implies that well, anybody who's using this textbook, reading it, is getting the same stuff out of it, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if we talk about this textbook as an artifact, and we know that whenever you're approaching it, you've got to you have some kind of hermeneutic, some sort of way of interpreting it and and putting it into use, then that just reminds us ah, I want to pay attention to see what do they do with this text, right? How did they, you know, they have a formula in here that they're using. How did they actually use that in their, you know, in their classrooms, in their, in their work? What did, what, did, what, how did they take this and, and, and do some work with it? You know, whether it's theoretical, you know, theoretical work in the sense that you're doing work on, you know, pencil or mm -hmm. pen and paper, or whether it's, you know, some kind of, um, you know, calculating work, like it's actually a, a formula and you're plugging numbers into it and, and stuff like that. Or um, so, whatever the case might be, how do they, how do they put it into practice? How do they take it and use it? So I think the really good people who write talk about writing history of ideas sort of actually pay attention to those differences, mm -hmm. right? But I think by using that lens of, of practice, of reminding us that what's, you know, when the textbook goes from one place to another, 
it doesn't mean that ideas are going from one place to another. It just means this thing is going from one place to another. And then we want to look at how do people use it. And if they're using it in the same way in two different places, that implies there's something else that's kind of uniting these two groups. They have some sort of, you know, again, um, strategy of interpreting, a hermeneutical approach to interpreting textbooks or some other set of commitments that they, you know, maybe a common set of training that they had in the past so that they both read this in the same way. Because we know that, you know, you just send one book to lots of different places, you're going to get very different reactions to it. And so that's the, the language of practices for me. It just helps, it's a reminder about what's going on and what I should be paying attention to. You know, merely sending a text is not enough. Merely, you know, us having this conversation is, you know, sort of interesting, but then you go off and do some work with it, and you might use it, and you might take some of these ideas in completely different ways than, than I would have thought of, and there's nothing wrong with that, that's great. Um, but it, it kind of, sh again, shows us how do we know what's, what's kind of being transmitted as well when we see the work. Of course, Tom realizes that our research analyzes discursive practices, because that is generally the data we have available to us. We can't go back in time and observe our protagonists practicing. The next thing we wanted to discuss with Tom was about Foucault and his various methods. Because it's mentioned in the paper, but also because we discussed it during the workshop. You can't do philosophy of science without a historical approach, that the two are just wedded together. And you know, I think Foucault's historical stuff is, is exactly the same way. So you've got to think philosophically about, about what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish uh, here. And that history is a kind of philosophical intervention as well. So the two are bound together. And they're closely steeped in kind of Continental philosophy, so you know this tradition of like Descartes and Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche and you know Heidegger, um, and they're drawing on all of that stuff. And it, and most Anglo-American historians are not steeped in that same way in this this kind of material. So a lot of the debates and issues are just farm. They're they're missing what's kind of what's going on. So that that's that's another part of why this uh, you know why I think a lot of this literature takes a while to. Um, to get into. But then the, the the additional complication in the case of Foucault is that he's not a static figure, right? You, you can't talk. So you guys were like, well, can you give us his approach? The problem is he changes his approach like every single thing he writes. Like it's, it's sort of different in some way. And, and this is, you know, for him, this is very deliberate. And it, I mean, he, draw, he talks ex explicitly about sort of Nietzsche and um, makes you know, allusions to, to Nietzsche in this way that, that he's not, he doesn't, uh, feel some need to have a kind of fixed identity that is constant through time, that he's you know, maintaining this you know, consistency of approach all the way through. I think you can, you know, his ideas, it's, it's not that they're completely novo, they, they sort of build on one another, but it, it, you know, each book often has a very different approach and focus and, and set of tools, and so you, you can't say what is the sort of thing. Now, the stuff that I, the things that, that I have found most interesting or that I've used most in this paper are a lot of the early early work. So the, um, the archaeology, uh, so archaeology de soir is the, a big text, and then some of the genealogical stuff that followed immediately after that, but not so much the later stuff on neoliberalism or on governmentality. And it's not that I think that's uninteresting. I think it is interesting, but it's just not what I was using in terms of this of this paper. And and so it's that time period of Foucault, kind of like birth of a clinic you know, through discipline and punish that, that is the sort of the core of what I'm using to, to think about this, uh, or using in this, this paper. We had a question about the diagrams. Maybe we could talk about the diagram, which is a way of trying to make sense of a birth of a clinic, which is, I don't, you probably have not read that text, mm -hmm. I would imagine. It's not, there's, you know, so it's, it's about um, kind of history of, of medicine and, and physiology in France, right around the, the French Revolution. And it's like a maddeningly difficult book in the sense that, you know, anybody who, 
at least in my experience, anyone who sort of reads it is, uh, or again, any Anglo-American that comes to this straight away is like, I have no idea, like, what he's even like claiming, you know, what, like, what, what's the argument of this book? I'm not even sure what it is. Like, I can, you know, understand individual sentences here, but it's, it's not building up to a coherent whole. And part of it, I think, is that Foucault is sort of exploring this methodology that he only makes a little bit more explicit in the archaeology of knowledge later on. Um, that's what I was trying to capture a little bit in this diagram was, was part of that. So the, the idea the idea here is you've got these rows are different levels of practices, let's say. And then going this way is a kind of time access. And what's interesting to Foucault are these shifts in configurations over time, right? So that if we take a kind of a time slice through here, you have a, a bunch of different things that are kind of clustered together. And his argument is that there are actually relationships between these such that when one of them changes, others have to shift as well. And that's what this, the more complicated version with the, with the arrows is trying to delineate. So this is why you've got these, um, this arrow kind of going up this way and this arrow going down. But you can think about those as the arrows are supposed to be kind of maybe quasi-causal relationships. So the claim is that these con this conception of disease is linked to a particular way of perceiving the body, which is linked to a certain set of, of institutions, which also those institutions are connected to certain um, ideas or concepts about the role of, of hospitals and the, you know, um, and the place of sort of capital and, and health, stuff like that. And then you get this sort of transformation period here in the, in the early part of the French Revolution. What emerges out of that afterwards is a new set of these relationships that are kind of self-stabilizing. And then and they have one shift and part of that down, down here in this level. So you get this image of all these different practices that are changing over time. But what's into what Foucault, I think, is trying to capture is are these synchronic ties, right? Synchronic ties that are that are linking these linking different levels of practices together at any given moment. And that, that there are actually logical relations between them. Like you can you can explain by understanding medical perception, you can see how it fits with a certain concept of disease, you can see how that fits with a certain institutional structure that goes along. That goes along with that, and that's what he wants to capture. But what's so challenging, I think, um, for most of us, is that he doesn't tell a story about how did we shift from this to that. Like, give me the causal account of why this. He doesn't do that. Uh, you know, I, I think rightly so. Like, he, you know, this is a deliberate attempt on his part to make an argument that you, the, the loops and of causation are so deep and they're so multi-causal that you can't. It's, it's, meaning, it's meaningless to try and say why I shifted from one to the other. What you can do is document that there was a change. And I think that becomes this kind of key aspect for him in the archaeology of knowledge, is sort of thinking about the relationships of what he you know, talks about as discursive practices, but thinking about the relationships of these practices and, and, uh, and lots of different levels. And you can, you can describe kind of synchronic logical relationships between them. You can see why these things bind together. But you can't give an overall causal account of why you shift from one configuration to uh, to another, and and it's not a total it's not a totalizing thing here. Like you notice that right at this point, even though you have shifts down here in terms of medical perception and disease, the clinic still exists like under both mm -hmm. under both of these regimes. And likewise, you have this particular liberalist uh, liberalism interpretation of, of the clinic that this sort of helps sustain the notion of clinic that that carries through between both of these shifts. So it's not that. Everything changes all at once, but you have these networks of relationships um, that are that are shifting over time, and and that's what he's trying to capture and describe, in my in my view, in, in Birth of the Clinic and the kind of things he's talking about in archaeology knowledge. And I found that really fascinating because it just sort of it it makes sense to me, and I 
I think I see evidence of that in the, um, in the stuff that, that, that I've worked on as well. In other words, Tom argues that the type of research questions he explores do not enable him to find causal links. It's just not possible to find the exact causes for huge transformations like the one Foucault looked at. You know, in other places, I'm, I'm perfectly happy giving a causal account when you, you know, when you set up a, a background, as it mentioned, like, okay, given this set of institutional contexts and, you know, given, given the temperament of these individuals having to be involved in this, I can see why they came to this decision. Like, I can give a narrative that sort of makes sense of that. But that's, that's starting from a very strange frame and saying, you know, hold all this stuff kind of constant, and then I can tell a story about what happens in this little interval. But to talk about these really wide, broad-scale shifts in social practices of the sort that I have in mind here, I, I just don't think you can, you can do that. At the end of the day, Tom wants us to understand that we should find the approach that makes sense to our research question and project. Like, I've never, I don't concern myself too much with, well, would Foucault agree with what I'm saying about X? I don't, you know, I really don't care. Like, it's, he's a, a resource for me. And I try, you know, I do, do your best to try and understand it and make sense of it and give a kind of interpretation that makes sense to me anyway, at least of, of what you're sort of claiming here. But I don't, I don't concern myself with, like, if I show this diagram of birth of the clinic to Foucault, would he be like, exactly what I'm talking about. Like, no, you totally misread me. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, that would be interesting and in that I would learn a new way of reading it. But nonetheless, to me, this is valuable in its own right. It's sort of giving me ways of thinking. So that's in some ways, I guess, how I want this essay to be treated, that it's not a sort of dogmatic treatise. It's sort of like you take what you find interesting and, and useful from it and you, 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 know, you use that and, and run with it. So it's not a at least from my perspective, it's not trying to lay out a theory. This is the one way of, of doing history of economics. It's the only valid way of doing it. You've got to you know, follow through on these principles. It was really you know, putting forward a bunch of, you know, a number of claims that I just found productive and useful for myself to think about. And if other people find them useful, that's great. Right? It was a fun paper to write in a lot of ways because I kind of wrote it for myself to like clarify these ideas for myself, and if you know, other people like some of it, that's wonderful, but mm. you, know, you, you take and pick and choose what, what you find helpful. Christina then asked how Tom takes a term from the past and applies it in contemporary research when it might mean something different over time. I don't, I don't there's not, for me anyway, there's not a, a like universal answer to the dilemma that you're, <laughs> that you put your finger on here because I think there are two things at play. One is that we kind of come to make distinctions or develop terminology that actually can kind of clarify, I think, debates that were happening in the past. Like you can say, mm -hmm. all right, I can see why, you know, why these two people are talking past one another, because even though they're using the same term, one of them meant, one of them was focused on this, and the other one was focusing on that. And today we, we kind of peel those apart into two separate notions so we can kind of, so I mean, we can kind of understand what was, what was happening here. I think all this, this that's certainly, that's clearly a useful thing to to be able to, to do. There's the danger, but it comes along with the danger of that when you bring a term for the present, you also bring along all these associations and an understanding of it that might not have been in the past, and in that way, you're just sort of distorting what you're talking about, right? So, so there's so it's all there's always I think a matter of judgment about yeah. when you're going to do this and, and being very careful about it. If you're interested, there's there have been a lot of debates and discussions about this around the use of science versus natural philosophy to talk and within the history of science to talk about what's going on in the early modern period for example because you know that that term science is a well, certain english is a 19th century kind of invention it had the latin scientia but it means something very different and most so 
most of the people in Britain, like Newton or involved with the Royal Society or Bacon, they talk about themselves as doing natural philosophy. And so for a long time, there was this, historians had kind of shifted and said, all right, well, if I'm writing about the 17th century, I'm not going to write about science. I'm going to write about natural philosophy because that's the term of the time that's more precise. But then there was some sort of backlash against that as well, that actually this is, you know, we're sort of pretending that this, that by calling it natural philosophy, we're, we're somehow being true to the source, but we really aren't, and here's why. And, and so there, 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 you find a series of, of kind of articles kind of debating, debating like anachronism in the history of science, and that's the, um, uh -huh. yeah, so if you look up, you know, anachronism is like the buzz, the buzzword among historians for, um, for, for wrestling with this, this kind of question. And I'll, I'll give you one example of maybe of the dangers of just reading the past through the lens of the present, which you're probably mm -hmm. already aware of at some point. But it just it kind of came out from my, my own work on um, price index theory. So I did something similar, I think, to Maria, which you were talking about. You like, just decided to go back and just sort of read all these people in this time mm -hmm. period. And that's that's kind of that's what I did for uh, for people writing about cost of living indices, sort of just reading from the late 19th century into the early 20th century without without having done very much reading at all about contemporary um, cost of living in this theory, which is easy for me to do because I'm not an economist, so I didn't have you know, necessarily training in that. I knew a little bit about their notion, but not very much. And it took me, and then I, so I read that, and then I was reading stuff that people were writing, and you know, I then went and read some of the contemporary stuff, and I was like, I don't understand this. Why are they making these kinds of claims here that the people in the past would find so problematic? And it took me a long time to figure out what had happened, but I realized that there was a different understanding of what we can call a uh, utility-based cost of living index, so, you know, something that's supposed to keep you at the same standard of living understood in terms of utility. Now, the way this was understood in the early 20th century was very different than the way you know, mm. contemporary economists thought about that same definition of cost of living indices. But most of the people who had written about this hadn't recognized mm -hmm. the shift at all because they had read these texts in the light of their own kind of notions, their own kind of training of of cost of living indices were still using the word utility, still talking about standard living in terms of, of utility. And so they had interpreted through that framework and missed the gaps. Whereas me going back to this earlier stuff, because I didn't have a preconceived <laughs> notion, you know, had ended up um, kind of realizing where this where this split was uh, split was happening. So that's where I think that that danger of importing the present back from the past is that you can you can kind of miss things and miss misread texts and you know in that respect. This reminds me of something that we're forced to do in my department, which is to make sure that you have solid theoretical foundation in the sense that you declare your view on how research is done and and your epistemological viewpoints, so like the idea that I believe that I will have an impact on my conclusions. Mm -hmm. So understanding that, that my idea of development is different. And I took a year to understand what really development meant to my protagonists. And I was, because today we conflate progress with development, which they didn't, which has had like completely changed my view on, on my entire research project. And so, but, but, but I can, if I declare my theoretical foundation and use my theoretical framework throughout my, my arguments, right, then I understand that, that my modern day understanding of development will have effect on their understanding, but that could also be very useful, right? That's why I think going back to, to texts 100 years ago is useful, because we could derive a, a, a different interpretation which could be useful for understanding of the world today, right? But understanding that the context affects that understanding doesn't necessarily mean that there's no, there's no value in doing it. You're not naively 
taking, let's say, a contemporary concept and applying it to the past, you kind of recognize what you're doing. And so you're always looking then for the gaps, right? Where is it that by, you know, you said inflation targeting, where is it by taking this notion of inflation targeting and putting it on the past, where does it fit and where does it not fit, right? Where do the connotations of, of that actually not map on the past? And then that, re that actually then reveals all kinds of really interesting sort of stuff. It's recognizing that the questions you're asking, your initial questions, are situated in the present and this sort of notion of development. And you want to insert, I mean, I assume that you you want to kind of understand or get a different perspective on it, something like this, by going back and looking at these texts. And you have a kind of intuition that there's a connection between what's happening here and, you know, and, and, the, and the present day debates, right? So that this, so that what you're doing can kind of inform our understanding of uh, our understanding of the present in some way. And it doesn't have to be a. That's actually an interesting example because let's let's just say take a hypothetical that the the folks that you're reading, in fact, had no impact on Britain and discussions of Britain in the U.S. I mean, or, or the rest of the world around development. That's not true. But let's you know pretend that it did, so that in that case you wouldn't be able to trace like this direct line even in terms of the practice. Let's say it's this sort of isolated group talking about something. But what you're doing by exploring that kind of that sort of history is understanding the practices as they exist now in a different way. And, I think, and so, so that's really the that for me is the, the kind of goal of historical analysis is that it gives us a different outlook on the present and forces us to change our, our views of, of how we see things. And that's why I want to emphasize that it's it's an intervention. It's always an intervention in the, mm -hmm. in the present in you know in one way whether it's direct whether it's explicit whether you you know you may not have some coda at the end that says like, here's now what we have to do about development like coming out you know having learned about India in the late nineteenth century this, this is what we need to know for today you, you won't have that you probably won't have that but nonetheless I think having gone through this this exercise and thought your your view is that this is going to change how we think about things now in in ways that are probably hard to quantify uh, exactly but you, you start to pull out at least some of the, the notions that, that come from it, right? But it doesn't require you to do, to follow every step in the chain mm -hmm. all the way back, I think, to do the, the kind of thing that I've uh, been thinking about. Now, in, in actual reality, right, I think you would probably argue that what your, your Indian political economist were writing actually does have an effect, in, you know, does affect arguments in, in Britain in some way. And even by, this is also interesting, even if it did not, right, the absence of that connection helps you understand this genealogy, right? And you, you have this debate that's really interesting. It doesn't impact the larger transformations that, that come up to the, the present. That, is, that absence is also really striking and, and interesting. So it's kind of like either way you win, right? <laughs> you know, either you've got a, a positive, you know, you, you could see a kind of transformative effect or there wasn't anything in that, but that also then becomes of interest. Why were these, you know, uh, these were ignored? What, what if we take them into account now? What if we start to think about them in this way? How does it change, change the way we, we see the present? I mean, it says something about their agency or lack of agency as well like it also highlights relationships between intellectuals and between actors or agents right, right. and that's also really that's going back to your point of like why, why are some environments good for some ideas and, and not good for others right that's about the people right again right, right. this is where i go back to more this tangible thing like i yeah. see these people as agents and that, that have agency in there which is something i struggle a little bit with my research because most people especially indians assume that that the Indian intellectuals didn't have any agency at all, mm. that it was just so oppressive system and that they didn't have a space to talk. And sure, 
that comes into my research because they're unequal, right. right? They're not on a level playing field. They're censored. They're they're scared to say certain things about cell phones on. But that doesn't take away their ability to talk and build meaning, right? And construct meaning, right? Maybe I could take your the austerity example you were talking about because you were wondering, well, how would one go about approaching this? So again, I wouldn't want to think about that as oh, it's a history of an idea. I want to see how this idea was disseminated because. What are we actually looking at? We're looking at a word that's being used in all these different contexts and wasn't used so widely in certain forms of discourse. And now it is being used widely, right? So it's appearing. This is, this is a study of how practices are changing, right? Of how political discourse is picking up a concept or picking up a term that wasn't necessarily present as dominant in, in the past and now has become, uh, has become really important. And it's linked to all sorts of other uses, usages of that term. And it's linked to, to sort of policies that are being put in action and, and attached to this this label of austerity, right? So again, it's being linked to practice. So what you want to think, so I would say is you're not looking at the dissemination or creation of an idea or dissemination of an idea. You're looking at transformations of practices, practices of political discourse, practices of policymaking, um, practices in sort of media representation, let's say, in, in, in journalism or something like that. And you're looking at the, the shifts in these practices and all linked around this word austerity, that you know, they're tied to this word austerity in, in one way or you know, and again, for me personally, I wouldn't think you're not going to come back to a causal account for why is everyone's talking about austerity all of a sudden, like, you know, as if, as if we're going to be able to give a single reason for this. But what you can do is start to track the transformations that have happened, you know, as this word has predominated in certain kinds of political discourse, what are the, the policy actions that are linked to that? And you can, and you can also begin to trace that backwards as well. Like what are, what are the other, um, practices that have been in place that have made this possible that are, that are linked with it in various ways. So that's how I would kind of go about approaching that. We then discuss the difference between theory and practice. I'm just wondering, would you just say that, well, you don't have a theory that's sort of just sitting there in the air, um, and then a practice that's like, you know, I don't know, a hospital closing or a school being shut. It's like, you know, the theory is always concrete in the sense of, it's not just sitting in a te- I mean, sitting in textbook, but it's being discussed right. in certain circles or... I would want to talk about that in, in a different in a different way. And I, I agree with you. That that is very much the common way of talking about theory and practice, that theory is sort of like what we say and the, the, and, and, and not just what we say, but it's a um, more abstract attempt to basically model model what, what someone is doing or provide, you know, uh, provide a um, more universalized yeah, I guess a kind of a universal model or uh, explanation or equation that describes a whole bunch of very dis- different particulars, right? That are the practices. Or you can talk about like, you know, a doctor goes into his class and learns anatomy in theory, and then you know he goes out and works on you know the, the corpse of that or, or a living person. And that's when you learn anatomy in practice, right? So that that's a familiar way of, of talking. I and I would agree that it, it's total. The you're describing something, and what's happening in the classroom is very different than than what mm-hmm. the what the doctor is doing, you know, say doing a dissection on a, on a corpse in training or on a you know, living human being they're doing surgery or something like that. But I don't want to, I want to resist the notion of calling that theory versus practice only because I think it, it what, what happens then is it effaces the practices that in fact comprise theoretical practices it doesn't that doesn't quite capture it either but you, mm-hmm. it's the the practices that are involved in the deployment construction you know, use of and in fact that in fact make up the theory that comprise the theory is really the uh, the practices it may, so it may be that there's a 
a sort of a theory sitting around in each person's head, um, but probably they're different. And what they share in common are, let's say, like diagrams of, of models and how they take those diagrams and apply them for particular cases. So they, they share artifacts, they share practices, and we might want to say, okay, when they're when there's a really close alignment between the two, they've got the same the same idea. Um, but what we're really studying are the artifacts and the practices. And we want to just kind of constantly remind ourselves of that because it it opens the door for new questions. Like, right, you know, like what, um, you know, in the case of the, the pedagogy example of, of the doctors, right, it allows us to think not just like well, what's in the textbook, but about how is the textbook being taught and what's the structure of the classroom, what's the format of the classroom, how does the professor interact with the students, what are they what kinds of homework, let's say, you know, assignments, exercises are, are they set? How do they use this textbook? They go and take notes in it. Do they, you know, all, it opens up just a whole range of other, of other questions that I think otherwise we have a tendency to like kind of elide and, and skip over and just say, oh, there's the theory. And now the, the practice stuff happens somewhere else. And so, you know, Andy Warwick, again, is another, is a, a good person to read on this because that, that was really his Big thing that he was trying to do is this book, Masters of Theories, is you know, massively large book, so you're not going to read the whole thing. But he also has some nice, nice articles in there as well. But it, but it is good reading through it because he was taking all this talk of practice that had developed in science and technology studies and a lot of sociology of science, most of which had been had been looking at experimental practice, and he was saying, no, we should we need to apply this to what people are doing to develop and use theories as well. That that, that this applies here as well. And I think it's just you know, really fantastic set of stuff that he was he was able to do as a result of that. And that makes it also then understand the normative values involved in the theory production, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of almost lost. Yes. You know, like I asked a, a neoclassical economist last year, why do we want supply to equal demand? That you're actually saying that that is what you want. Mm -hmm. And he just he couldn't answer the question because that's just so obvious to him. Right. Well, it's a theoretical exercise or a hypothesis that just might let's let's see if the maths works mm -hmm. and and as a theoretical exercise to see whether that yeah the maths works out or not and then we can then measure the difference between that and the world but then you're actually placing a normative value on the world right you want supply to equal demand right but maybe you don't i mean maybe we don't i, I mean i don't know the answer either but it's i guess with the practice you actually bring in a lot of other as you said a lot of other concrete practices, like what homework are you doing, but also that all the things involved in the theory, which is often ignored. I then asked Tom about his idea of mutually stabilizing and dominant practices. Are you assuming change? No, no, no. 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 Yeah, I, I think you want to be attuned to look for change, right? But in but you're also in, the, the notion of these practices as being kind of mutually stabilizing is intriguing to me i think stasis needs an explanation how about that mm -hmm. so right you're, you're interested in looking for change not because you think oh things that are static we don't have to explain why they're, they're static it's mm -hmm. just that you know the the change shows something novel here we want to find that but you're but that's what the value of thinking of these mutual stabilizing practices that have is try to understand why are certain pattern patterns so so fixed i mean this is what what actually fascinated with Foucault and with the birth of the clinic i mean and, and maybe his his claims are sort of wrong but he makes an argument that by the end of this period you had a creation of a whole series of institutions and, and, and certain kinds of practices that actually can carry through all the way up into the 20th century right mm -hmm. so you have this period you know, this rapid set of change right around the, the french revolution and then you have this, this kind of stability and i just wrote something a little bit about that similar in the case of economic statistics that interest you know, that interests me like mm -hmm. the fact that you have the you know the 
the shift to governments creating time series data on all these different kinds of things. I mean, you know, they just they it wasn't there in the nineteenth century, and then it crops up pretty quickly. You know, kind of I mean, things get added and it gets always it grows and becomes more expansive. But nonetheless, you get the core of it here in the 1930s, and it's just there. Like, it, it doesn't go away. It hasn't stopped. And the same set of relationships between that, I'd argue, between econometrics, between forecasting, are all, all of these things get set in this period. And, of course, they all change. Econometrics change. The, the kinds of data that's produced change. I mean, it's changing all the time, methodology. But you have this sort of global configuration of practices that does remain quite constant. And that's fascinating. Like, why is that, you know, mm. why does that happen? And I think that by thinking about how these practices stabilize one another is, for me, a way, it's providing a kind of explanation. Um, it's not the causal explanation of why did we get this exact configuration, or you know, why did it happen at this particular point, but it, it does account for the stability, which is otherwise somewhat puzzling, or, or you just, yeah, you wonder why, you know, why is it there, and why is it, you know, why do you get this pattern repeated across every industrialized nation that does, does this kind of stuff? Finally, I found Tom's idea of mutually stabilizing practices very similar to my theoretical framework based on Bacton's two tendencies in language, where there are dominant discourses that stay around for longer and that are treated as commonsensical, and then there are marginal discourses that fight for that dominance. So I was wondering if Tom had a theory of how marginal practices fight for dominance. Let's say your Indian political economist had just never been read in Britain, had never been read, and, and so they they picked each other, and then they all died, and nobody read their stuff, you know, did anything with it, so it, it's just this circle that never goes anywhere. But that's still a really interesting. That still tells us something about the dominant narrative, right? It allows us to see that, let's say, the dominant discourse in a very different way once we bring tell this story, right? And so there's no reason why just because something is marginalized or small that it's therefore not of interest in a genealogical account because it's you know it didn't it didn't affect the the big you know the, this big transformation we're looking at no because it's actually very interesting you know and and, and reveals its own, own sorts of things so there's nothing inherent in what i was saying here that say that, that would lead you not to look at marginalized discourses now if you're asking like how does one theorize it so for me anything that's any of these practices that exist over any extended period of time has it, it can only exist because it's linked with other sets of practices that are sustaining it in some way right you know that's the the only way you're going to have these have these things around so there's all they're always going to be even though what we're, we're talking about the marginalized discourses are going to have certain like connections with other practices that hold them stable for a certain time and allow them to exist and something is going to happen to sort of fracture that and make that make that impossible um, impossible to sustain any further, you know, and it's going to be, you can't answer in the, in the abstract what that will be, but it could be lots of you know, different things, right? And if I were to think about how these become, you know, how do they come to affect, uh, you know, a more dominant uh, discourse, my hunch is that they do so by, often by latching onto other dominant practices, like finding ways of engaging these other dominant practices that, that show connections between them, right? You know, so you th think like in the United States with the um, civil rights movement and you know, Martin Luther King, of course, is very influenced by, um, by Gandhi. What is it that, what is it that starts to allow this to succeed? Part of it is you know, latching onto um, a discourse of Christianity and morality and a whole set of practices that are designed to emphasize this, you know, they always, when they're going these, these marches, 
the participants they wanted them to be really well well dressed um, that it links it to a set of other practices and in this way you know, is able to kind of gain traction now does this mean you can give a causal account of why certain movements succeed and others you know others don't why are these but I think you know theoretically that's how I would I would claim discourses that are become that are marginalized at one point are, are able to gain some traction when they connect with you know other discourses there's really nice um, uh, some work by Allison Wiley who writes about feminism and archaeology and and she talks about like how feminist archaeologists were able to grab a, you know, um, create a place for themselves within archaeology and sort of shift the field. So they, they really have been marginalized voices because they started, they were able to show how their analysis could give better accounts of things that the, the sort of more male-dominated field cared about. And so that's what, like, they were able to show, look, here's how, here, here are things that you care about. You know, someone who's not a feminist, but an archaeologist, you have certain things you care about. Look, I can show you how bringing this feminist perspective to bear on this situation can help you understand this better. And so they were able to take a discourse that was, was marginalized and actually bring it into sort of much more widespread acceptance be, because they were able to draw connections. So I think, I think if I were to you know, theorize about what are the cases where the marginalized discourses are, are able to get a hold of things because they make these, you know, these connections on, on other, other forms of practices. Absolutely. And just using the same categories, right? Something that I was, was really surprised about, which is not surprising now after having read all the theory, but was realizing that, that my protagonists used exactly the same words as the British. And I'm like, well, why do they do that? I mean, mm -hmm. and it's obvious because if they don't, then they're not understood and then they're not listened to. Right. And you don't write mm -hmm. for no one to read it. Well, most of the time, we don't write mm -hmm. for no one to, to read it, right? Even if it's our future selves, right? If we write a diary, it's for ourselves, but it's for our future selves. So we write in, in a way to want to be understood, and therefore we're going to use the same categories as someone else. That brings us to the end of our interview with Tom. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for your very interesting paper. Remember to check out our website, ceteresnonparibus.net, to see links to the paper we discussed and other sources mentioned by Tom, Christina and myself. Sign up to get notifications of new episodes as well on our website. Follow us on Twitter at ceteresnparibus. As a last little word of advice, I'm going to leave you with a short conversation Gonzalo Fonseca and I had after the workshop. For those of you who don't know, Gonzalo Fonseca is a research fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking and the founder of the History of Economic Thought website, hetwebsite.net. Thank you for listening. Method is not like a step one step two step three kind of thing it's a it's an approach to something you just need to keep in mind all the time yeah but how do you do that concretely so there's a very concrete example in my own research if i read a letter right and most letters that i read are to my protagonist rather than from because because he's the famous guy his letters are kept the ones he receives but not the letters that he sends so some of them of course keep copies of their letters and so on so how do i deal with do I assume that um, I can quote from the letters from those those other people to my protagonists? Like, do I assume that they're saying around about the same thing? And how do I know when they disagree and when they don't? Unless they say it, of course, which sometimes happens. Maybe I'm just like naive PhD students. I just want answers to everything that I can't get. Well, the question is, I mean, it's never about answers. It's always like, can you like, ask the correct questions at this stage? And... If that's the correct question to have, uh, is 
maybe how to make a question more precise. I think that's in Hiro's exercise. That's I thought really the what was getting out of it is he's trying to put your focus. This is you're asking the wrong question. You're getting distracted by the wrong thing. Just focus back on the practice. Focus back on what you can on the materials. Just keep you know that part that you can do, not necessarily struggling with the the mountain that you're looking at. I, I like that part of it because that was sort of yeah. keep your eye on the ball. Yeah, that's a good place to end.